the Missional Life Podcast, inspiring kingdom-minded believers around the world to live the mission of God in their lives. All right, welcome back to the Missional Life Podcast. Today we have Dr. David Vanderpool on the show. David is a medical doctor who ran a successful practice in the United States who left it all to found Live Beyond, a faith-based humanitarian organization bringing medical and maternal health care, clean water, education, orphan care, community development, and the gospel of Jesus Christ to the oppressed in Haiti. Dr. David, welcome to the show. It's great to be here. Thank you so much. Wow. That's quite, that's quite an introduction, and that's quite a contrast, moving from being a doctor here in the States to moving to a developing country, one of the, the, the least developed in the world, and applying your skill sets and applying what God has given you. Tell us a little bit more about that journey. How does one go from really, in a sense, being, you know, if we will, to the top of this kind of social stratosphere, the social pyramid here in the United States, to really going to a country, leaving it all behind and, and serving the, the least of these in the world? You know, it's a great question. And, and it's one we get fairly frequently. In fact, it was sort of the nidus of us writing a book about this. Um, but, you know, the Lord is so kind. And, and I had the best of everything. My growing up, uh, my parents uh, are Christians. My heritage through generations uh, are Christians. Uh, I was able to go to the best schools possible, live in the best neighborhoods. And I remember that uh, I traveled a lot with my parents. My dad actually did some medical mission work. He's a surgeon as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, we were traveling throughout the world. I was an only child, so I got to carry the bags. You know, that was sort of what <laughs> my, my job was. Uh, and we were, I was probably 15 or so, uh, and we were down in Brazil going through one of the worst slums in the world. It was just mm-hmm. a terrible place. And it was raining. The slum was on a hillside. People were actually living in cardboard boxes that were now wet and sliding down the hillside. And so we're going through this slum. We're meeting the people. We're treating them medically. And it just, just riveted me because here I had the best of everything. I grew up with a a platinum spoon in my mouth, so to speak, Mm -hmm. and I had the best education. You know, I I never slept out in the open unless I was camping somewhere, right? I mean, I was never exposed to any kind of rain or cold or anything like that. And yet here were just a tremendous number of people, tens of thousands of people that were trapped in this slum with this giant wall around it so that nobody could see them. They wanted to be kept out of sight. They were the invisible people. And the difference, the absolute disparity between their lives and my life, I just could not come to grips with that because I knew I had never done anything to deserve that. I didn't earn that. I was born into this family and I was blessed because of that. But why was I allowed to have the best education uh, to to go in, as far in, in education, you know, as I could at least, and uh, and here these people were starving to death, uh, exposed to the rain and the cold on a muddy hillside in Brazil. It just absolutely, uh, it just really got to me. Um, and a- another experience was pivotal as well. We were actually in in Nazareth, uh, in Israel. And uh, this was in the early 70s, it was about 74, 75. And uh, we had gone to church uh, with a group of Arab Christians who lived there. And I was sitting on the front steps of the church talking to this uh, young Arab girl who was about my age. And we were just talking as, you know, 14, 15 year olds do. And she said, uh, what do you, you know, what are you going to be when you grow up? And I said, well, I don't know, like probably become a doctor. I mean, that's what my whole family does, you know? And I said, well, what about you? And she looked at me with this look on her face, like I must be from another planet. And she said, I, I'm an Arab Christian in Israel and in, in a Muslim dominated area. She says, I'm going to carry water and have babies for the rest of my life. That's what I'm going to do. And I looked at that disparity again, and I just thought, you know, she, she was a brilliant girl, uh, you know, very, very smart. She taught herself English, 
And I thought, why in the world am I given all this stuff? And I'm just a knucklehead, don't even know what I want to do. Uh, and she knows very well what's going to happen to her. And again, that disparity between uh, her life and my life uh, is just, is just, was just too much to bear. And so the, the Lord really spoke into me uh, at this time and was saying that he was calling me to a different life than the one that I was apparently heading toward. And um, fortunately, uh, my girlfriend at the time, who I later married, uh, was right in lockstep with this idea that our lives were to be sacrificial. Our lives were not to be one where we are, um, you know, top of the social heap and and uh, wealthy and all this kind of thing. That we that we will actually really disparage those things and embrace a sacrificial life. And uh, and that's what really led us to take care of the poorest of the poor uh, in our ministry. Wow, there's so much in there. I love that you kept on asking why, 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 you know, because so many times we don't ask that question and God, you know, that's really what a missional life starts with. Why do I have that? Why do I have these gifts? Why is this stirring my heart the way that it is? Because so many times, you know, we just go through life. We're so fast, especially in the American culture that we never have a chance to slow down process and ask why, why did I get this, this education? Why did I go into this in the first place? Why did I have these experiences? And it reminds me this, this, you're, as you were speaking, it just really took me back to some of my, my own experiences where uh, in college, we went on a, uh, I was in, involved in a program where we went around the entire world on a ship and we went to a lot of different co countries. And I remember going to India and there was a mother who had basically severed her children's fingers like they she cut off this child's fingers because she knew that the lifestyle that she was giving him by by basically enabling him to, to beg better was better than the lifestyle he could grow uh. up and and work and earn more money and i remember mm. looking at that child and i just and it just wow it just hit mm. me and thinking wow god why do i have these experiences why am i getting this and it was and it was not so i can go back and tell everybody all these amazing stories but it was God, I, how do I, why do I have this? Wow. I can tell these other stories. I, we can talk with different people and we can inspire other people to get out there in a sense, live a missional life, to live beyond um, what, God, what you, where they're at right now and step into what God has for them in the future. So that's amazing. So, right. Right. so why, so why Haiti? Where did the Haiti connection come in? Tell us about that. Well, I always tell people, I thought they said we were going to Tahiti and it sounded uh, great. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> wow. Well, you got hoodwinked right. on that one. <laughs> That's right. I usually get people in on that one. Uh, you know, uh, we, our organization initially started out as a disaster relief organization. And so I'm a trauma surgeon by training and sort of fits my personality. Um, and so we actually did disaster relief work in several African countries, Central American countries. And then in Haiti in 2010, uh, they had a big earthquake on January 12th uh, that was just right on the edge of Port-au-Prince. And so Port-au-Prince was a city of about 3 million people and it just devastated Port-au-Prince. And so we actually went in with a, a quick reaction team and set up a hospital uh, that had already been built. Actually, a friend of mine had built this hospital, set up a hospital on the border of the Dominican Republic and Haiti. We're actually in the Dominican side, which was fantastic because we had uh, clean water and electricity, which are really nice in hospitals. You just can't imagine how nice that is. Um, and so we, at our peak, we had about 500 nurses, 180 physicians, and we brought injured Haitians uh, into our hospital and operated on them, restored them um, to life, uh, to the ability to walk, and, uh, and took care of them. We did tens of thousands of operations. And so our initial uh, call into Haiti was because of the earthquake. Now, most disaster relief organizations come in, do the disaster relief, and then leave. That's sort of the typical mantra. Uh, we decided to transition into a development phase 
which is a long-term type relationship. And so we actually kept going into Haiti. Um, we actually closed my, my surgical practice once a, a month for one week. And we brought medical teams in after we had uh, closed the hospital um, on the border. We moved into Port-au-Prince, set up clinics, and we were able to then minister to the people medically uh, through these clinics. Our approach is that we uh, take care of people's physical needs first, and then we minister the gospel to them. And so we feel like that's what Jesus did. You know, Jesus came and he healed the sick, and then he told everybody who he was. And we found that uh, to be extremely effective, and, and many, many people came to the Lord Jesus because of that. We stayed in Haiti. Uh, we actually bought land uh, in, uh, on the periphery of Port-au-Prince, sort of in the uh, east, northeast of Port-au-Prince, and uh, we built a base there. So uh, we actually moved full-time down uh, to this base in 2013, and uh, we've been there ever since. So it's been a wonderful time. We love the Haitian people. Uh, they're just a wonderful group. And uh, we've really uh, enjoyed serving them there in this area. I love how you shared, you know, ministering to the physical needs first and then sharing the word. You know, it's just love in action just reminds me of the book of James, you know, show me faith without deeds. It's like, hey, let's do the deeds and and give the word, you know, all wrapped right. up in one. So that's awesome. It goes back to that right. saying, too. you know. Go ahead. It goes back to that saying too, where, and I'm going to probably get this wrong, but we don't, I don't care what you know until I know that you care essentially. Yeah. And right. that's huge right. when you're, when you're trying to share the gospel. Mm -hmm. I remember one story that was, uh, you know, you, you go through and you take care of tens of thousands of people and there's always one or two stories that, you know, are just crystallized in your mind. And I remember it was it was very early in our time down there uh, in, uh, after the earthquake. And there was a little girl who was about, oh, six years old or so. And her leg had been completely crushed, mm. uh, probably by a concrete wall or something like that in the earthquake. And she needed to have her leg removed. That was going to be the only way to save her life. And her, um, her parents were there, which was just really uh, unusual. Usually the children are by themselves. And I talked to the parents and said, listen, we've got to amputate your little girl's leg to save her life. And obviously they didn't want that. They were very resistant to it. But, you know, we told them that unfortunately the clock was ticking on this. And if the clock got down to about an hour, then it was going to be too late. And so we really had to get to uh, get with the program. They went ahead and, um, and consented. We, we did the operation and she just did wonderfully. And so we would make rounds on her. She was always so cheerful. Uh, you know, we'd see her after the surgery and her dad was so thankful that she survived that he actually volunteered at the hospital. And, you know, we, we just got to see him a lot. He's extremely helpful, very tall man. And so he was pretty easy to pick out, uh, you know, in Haiti. And then one day they were gone. And that was sort of typical, you know, people got to feeling better and they would just sort of slip over and, and go back home. And so, you know, we just sort of thought, well, they're gone, but that was, it was such a joy to get to know them. Well, in our, probably about uh, two years later, maybe, uh, we were, um, you know, there every month for a week. We had medical teams in, and we had gone to this little church. There was a little church uh, in Port-au-Prince that we liked to go to. And as I was driving up, we're driving up and sort of, it was, it was raining. And so we're letting people off. And I was looking for a place to, you know, to put the, uh, the Land Rover. And uh, I looked over and there was this very tall man uh, with this little girl standing beside him. And I thought, well, that that's, looks a lot like him, but I'm sure it's not, you know, and I'll, so I went ahead and walked in and it was them. And so the little girl uh, had learned to walk by holding on to her daddy and walking with him. 
And mm-hmm. so they were, you know, moving together, <clears throat> but she had, she had not gotten a prosthesis for her leg. And so she really couldn't get out. And, and in Haiti, that's a real problem because the roads are so rough. Many of them are not paved. You know, there's really no sidewalks. And so if you have an uneven surface, it's very difficult to walk on crutches uh, with that. And so uh, we actually measured her for a prosthesis, got one made and, and uh, fitted her. But the, the joy of seeing them again and seeing them with so much faith, uh, they you know, were believers in the Lord Jesus, having come through so much difficulty, it was just such an amazing thing. And it's quite a boost for me personally. I know, I know my heart was full um, mm-hmm. and it was, uh, it was really a neat story to see. And, you know, hopefully she has continued to do well, you know, in that situation, but it's a, it's a hard thing. And it's, uh, it's the kind of thing that it's a touch like that, um, you know, that's well within our expertise. I mean, there was nothing that was out of the, out of the ordinary for us. Um, but the Lord used to become an enormous blessing uh, to this little girl and her entire family. And so sort of a neat story to show, uh, you know, how you can communicate the love of Jesus through your actions. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so many times we don't know the effect of what we do as Christians, you know, we essentially go serve. We do what we know the father would have us do. And we don't see the results of it. They just disappear into the city. They disappear into the country, but this was a cool experience for you to be able to, to see that and to see the fruit of that. And that has to, that has, that was a gift from God to really essentially see that. And it was kind of an attaboy. There you go. Good job. Keep at it. Don't, don't stop. And those sorts of things, you know, we don't always get them, but when we do, we have to treasure those and hold those in our hearts. Kind of like when you think about the Israelites, when they passed through the Red Sea, they, um, they, they, they picked up stones, right. And they remember, they, they had those things, they stacked off, they remembered. And sometimes we just have to stack those things up because when it's not always easy doing what we do, it sounds great when, you know, when we talk on TV or when we talk on podcasts or things, but the day to day, it's hard, it's hard. And, and we have to remember those stories because when you, you have to push through each new challenge. You alluded earlier to it, and I think it's a really big issue and uh, a way for us to improve on missionally. And I wanted to hear your perspective on it. Versus, it's the idea of relief versus development. They're different tool sets, right? And one Absolutely. is a response to the immediate, and one is a mm-hmm. long-term really sewing into and pouring into. And so tell us what your experience has been in the release side of things, because we know that you value that and you've been involved with that, but also contrast that with the effects of the development that you've seen as well. That's a great question. And, you know, it's really interesting. It's a lot like the difference in an evangelist, right? And, and somebody who's a teacher who's there in the, you know, in front of you every day, teaching you things. The evangelist comes in, you know, maybe once a year or something like that, he's gone. Uh, but, and he, he may plant, you know, he, but somebody else has got to water and fertilize. And so, you know, the, the relief part is, uh, is very, very different and separate from the development part. And this is something that I didn't understand, you know, before I got into it, the relief part is, um, you know, people are starving, you give them food, you know, so you bring food in however you can, you know, the, the cost is less important than, than what the effect is. You're just getting it there. Uh, they don't have clean water. You need to drill wells, get them clean water. They don't have health care. You've got to get them health care. And so, and typically it's a, just a complete gift. You know, you're not charging for anything. You're not trying to have any remuneration at all. Um, you're just trying to keep people alive. And, 
Now, in, in some places like Haiti, it's really hard to see where that ends and development starts, you know, because that in Haiti, that's a cycle that persists, you know, for decades and decades and probably hundreds of years. Um, but then development, on the other hand, is working arm in arm with the people to get them to help themselves. And so a, an example of that is, for instance, we built a hospital at, at our uh, at our base in Haiti, because there wasn't one. And it, surgery is at a premium in a place like that. And so, you know, in a relief situation, I would do the surgery, right? And I would do whatever needed to be done. In a, in a development situation, I would help teach the, the other physicians to do the surgery themselves. And so it's a, it's a hand in hand, it's, it's a partnership, it's a friendship, it's a relationship that you develop with relief there's hardly any of that. You know, you're just coming in, getting the work done and getting out with development. It's much more difficult. I've found, uh, because it's a, it's a long-term process. Uh, you're, you're sort of plodding along some days. It's like raising children. Some days you think, you, you know, you're raising, you know, little wolves and some days you think they're angels. Right. But, uh, you know, it's one of those things that you just, uh, you get this flux back and forth. <clears throat> but when you leave, you want to have them taking care of all of the above. You know, what's happened in Afghanistan recently um, is, an, is a, a failure of development, unfortunately, you know, that the, the United States pulled out and everything collapsed. Um, that's not what we want. And it doesn't have to right. happen that way. And there are, you know, there are mm -hmm. critical aspects that you can guard against that particular failure. So for instance, right now at our base in Haiti, we have a hospital, uh, we have a Haitian medical staff, doctors and nurses. Uh, we have a school with Haitian, uh, uh, Haitian teachers and principal. Everything is run by the Haitians and we're not there right now. So this is a this is a, a facet of how development works. Now it still has to be funded, right? So it's not free of funding, uh, which obviously is a goal. It's it is and it's a goal down the line. It may not be one that you realize in a place like Haiti, because the poverty level is just so intense. Um, but our school. Uh, is running very well. Matter of fact, our ninth graders just had a, a test and 100% of them passed the national exam to become 10th wow, graders, which is, uh, is a big deal. Uh, you know, and at our hospital, uh, the doctors and nurses are delivering babies. Um, and, and we set up systems uh, that they follow. Uh, best practices is what we would call it in, in healthcare. Uh, mm -hmm. We set up best practices models for them taught them how to do it side by side, day after day. Um, and now they're doing it. Well, that's how that's, that is a complete win uh, in our book. Um, you know, same thing with our farm. We have a demonstration farm uh, in Haiti. The farming techniques are almost prehistoric. It's a man with a hoe uh, farming. They don't even use animals to pull plows, which mankind's been doing for a long time. You know, so going in there and training the farmers in uh, a more advanced, not too advanced, but more advanced farming techniques allows them now to produce crops on their own and helps mitigate the starvation cycles, you know, that exist in these countries. And so <clears throat> that's, that's a big difference. And it's sort of the difference in, in uh, you know, your, your home preacher who's out there in front of you every, uh, every Sunday uh, being a pastor and teaching you every day versus the evangelist who who uh, blows in, gives a very stirring um, you know message and everybody's uh, you know ready to climb the mountain, uh, but then he's gone you know and yep. so it's a it's a sort of an analogy there. Wow, um, just something else that came to mind. I'd love to ask is, you know, in this development phase in you know teaching people, what are some of the main cultural barriers? that you guys have come across and, you know, from a biblical standpoint, you know, sharing the gospel, how have you walked people through that? Because, you know, to teach people, they first need to understand, you know, 
why it's important what they're learning and just to keep going with it and, you know, to implement the best practices. So I'm just curious, like, are there any religious barriers that you see down there? Are there cultural, societal, um, just things like that? Absolutely. And it's, excuse me, it's true in every culture we work in. Um, there'll be differences in the cultures. They're not quite as stark as a lot of people think. Uh, we all are really a lot alike. It's mm-hmm. sort of amazing. You can be talking to a Makande tribe member in Mozambique, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, who, who may carry a spear. And we got a lot in common, you know, and so it's, it's sort of interesting. In fact, I'll tell a, a quick story. I was, uh, this was in Northern Mozambique and we were working um, with a local group there and I was talking with one of the tribal leaders. He wasn't the chief, but he was one of the tribal leaders. And he was dressed as you would sort of anticipate in a you know, sort of a National Geographic type mm-hmm. picture. And, and we were talking to an interpreter, obviously. And, um, you know, I was asking him about his life and that kind of thing. And he, he sort of had a look of consternation on his face. And then he sort of blurted something out, you know, in his native tongue. The translator turned to me with this real quizzical look and said, he wants to know why you make ethanol out of corn and put it in your gas tanks. And I was completely taken aback. I mean, it was like, it was the last thing in the world I thought I would right. hear from that guy, right? right? You know, I mean, we might have that conversation, <laughs> right? He asked me that. And I said, uh, you know, that, that's a great question. Why do you ask? He says, because mm. I can't get enough corn for my people to eat mm. and you're burning it in your fuel tanks, you know? And wow. so it was just, I don't know if he's reading the wall street journal on his, his spare time or what, but this, we were way out in the middle of nowhere, but it, it's amazing how similar people are, really? but you know, in Haiti, uh, the primary religion in Haiti is voodoo. And so voodoo is not another denomination. Some people sort of thought that at times. It is actually a satanic worship. And so uh, openly satanic, it's a blood uh, religion. And so they sacrifice animals. There's talk of sacrificing humans. Don't know if that happens, but they do use blood uh, in uh, in their sacrifices. And so the voodoo priests are... um, they're, they're leaders in their villages, basically. And now they're, they're obviously a very negative leader. Leaders can be either way, right? Mm-hmm. And so the people will go to the voodoo priest and, uh, you know, want to get him to do something for them. It may be a curse on their enemy, could be anything like that. So these people are looked up to. And unfortunately, they spread a lot of evil Uh, and are malicious. They actually kill people. Um, And so that was the the religious backdrop to what we entered. And and so we were in a rural area of Haiti. Voodoo is much stronger in the rural areas than it is in the cities. And so these people would come against uh, us because here we're espousing righteousness. We're espousing um, loving Jesus, that, that we are um, see him as our king. They're espousing uh, the devil uh, as their king and are apparently doing works in parentheses uh, through the devil. And so one of the things that, that we would do, you know, you're always told you need to look commonality, right? And so I would go and I'd talk to these guys and I'd say, look, we got something in common, you know, um, you know, we're both doctors. I mean, uh, you know, I'm a surgeon. Well, you're a witch doctor, but you know, we got that's something. We got to look for something, right? Didn't work very well either. Um, but you know, they saw what we did, taking care of people medically, as uh, hurting their business. And so they actually, this is a business for them to concoct potions and you know things like that for the people to who are sick our stuff actually works that was sort of the good news and people started to recognize that mm-hmm. the interesting thing is that the uh, we have many voodoo priests who have come to the lord um, uh, because of our interactions you know and so mm-hmm. i'll tell one quick story this uh, i hope this isn't too um abrupt a story but um we uh, we had a, a, 
voodoo, the, the voodoo churches are called peristyles and it's after the French and it's a, they have a pole in the middle and they dance around the pole. It's got mm. a skull on it and that kind of thing. So that's where the peristyle comes from. And the, there's about five peristyles within a stone's throw of our base. The biggest one, uh, the voodoo priest um, had died and they hadn't replaced him with a new guy yet. And so we were, it was Sunday morning and, you know, we opened the gates and people are streaming into our church and it's just a wonderful time. Our pastor is just fantastic. And I look up and there's this guy who is running just full speed toward the church and people like to go to church, but I don't think I'd ever seen anybody running full speed to go to church, you know, and he was sweating and he was obviously very anxious. And of course, you know, my secular medical mind's gone. He's on drugs. I'm going to need to, you know, tackle this guy, take him out. We're going to have to have a talk, you know, that kind of thing. And so he comes running up and he says, I've got to be baptized. And I, I thought, well, we have a process for that. And running in, demanding it isn't in that process. So we're going to have to talk <laughs> about this. Fortunately, we had this absolutely wonderful uh, Haitian pastor uh, who uh, runs the whole thing. And I always defer to him because he's very wise. And uh, so he goes over and talks to the guy. And he comes back to me and he says, well, here's the story. He said that he had just taken over this voodoo peristyle. And last night he was asleep when the Lord woke him up. And he said, if you don't go to the Live Beyond Church and get baptized, I'm going to kill you. Mm. And that's why he was running into the church. <laughs> so wow. that's the guy that wow. we, we did. We went through our process, not necessarily his process. And uh, he is a very faithful member of our church, sits on the second row every time, sings his heart out. And, uh, and, it, and is representative of, you know, um, a life turned around, albeit a little oddly, you know, most people don't have it quite like that, uh, especially in the United States. <clears throat> but that's the kind of people we were up against. And so, and, and they were very violent people. So they would come at us with violence. We've suffered quite a bit of violence uh, in the years that we've been down there. And some at the hands of these voodoo priests. Um, and so, you know, they would try to poison us. They would throw blood on our gates and things like that. But, you know, we know that the Lord, it, you know, is our savior and he's our protector. Mm -hmm. And, mm -hmm. uh, and we're, we're, we're immune from that, you know, mm -hmm. in a very significant way. They could kill us, but we get to come back. And so uh, that's, uh, that's one of the things that, that we had to, to deal with. You know, as far as culture is concerned, um, you know, the, the, the Haitian people are just a, a lovely people. They're very, uh, they're very tactile. They love hugs and, and they walk hand in hand and, you know, all this kind of thing is so neat to see them do that. And so I think I've learned a lot about positive cultural influences from them. Hopefully we've taught them a few things, but seeing, you know, their, them care for each other, seeing them love each other. Um, and seeing the worship of God, here are people who don't have two sticks to rub together. We're talking about mm. a poverty that doesn't even get, is not even touched in the United States. We, the poverty we have in the United States would be, you know, uh, upper class in, in Haiti. And these are people who are joyful. They uh, love each other. They love the Lord. Uh, they sing everywhere we go. Uh, it's just absolutely amazing the difference. Uh, they have really no anxiety. You know, the anxiety levels in the United States are at all time highs. And here they are, you know, they may live in a mud hut and they're really pretty good to go. And so there's so many things like that, that, that I think I've learned from them. Hope, hopefully we've taught them a few things too, but well, thank you so much. That was, those stories are just incredible. I know the listeners will be so blessed by that. And I just want to highlight to what you shared about looking for the commonalities because so often like with people, we see differences right away. You know, we're not, it's not our natural instinct to find commonalities, you know, mm. so just being able to do that and recognizing like we're all in need of a savior 
you know, that's something right. we all have in common. But right. I just, I love how you brought that up because that helps create the bridges in order to, you know, draw people into the kindness of the Lord. So mm-hmm. thank you so much for sharing those. Yeah, you brought up, you know, that's one of the things that, I'm sorry, that, you know, I had so wrong. And, you know, I just assumed that mothers in these bottom tier countries couldn't love their kids as much as, as I do because so many of them died. So many of the children died. I mean, when we're, when we're looking at Haiti, we're, t- we're looking at one of the highest rates of child death in the world. It's stunning. And in the, the mothers die in childbirth at a rate that you just can't even grasp. I mean, it's just unbelievable. And I was so wrong, you know, they do, they do love their kids just as much as we do. They just have to bury them. And that is absolutely, for me, that's just not an option. You know, I I cannot go through life and not do something about that. And that's one of the reasons we started a maternal health uh, program for our our mothers and, and children um, and we've reduced that maternal mortality by 75%. Wow. And we're going to keep doing that. And it's, you know, it, it doesn't take a whole lot. It's just amazing what, what works over there. But we've re- reduced the, uh, the uh, mortality of uh, kids in their first year of life uh, by half. And it's, it's that kind of things where, you know, caring enough about people that you don't want them burying their kids at that rate. You don't want these husbands burying their wives um, because of something that the rest of the world has and takes for granted. And that's one of the things I think that, you know, you can really convey the love of Jesus with, um, you know, when you're doing things like that uh, for people. Mm-hmm. You touched on kind of spiritual dimensions, voodoo. And, you know, when you when you moved from Tennessee down there, that's probably something you didn't fully expect. You may have expected it in some capacity, but you probably didn't expect it to the degree. So can you tell us some of the things that you were most surprised about in that kind of spiritual dimension? And for the listener who is considering doing something in Haiti or in some kind of country that this sport sort of spirituality is still very prevalent. How can people be best prepared to go do ministry in those contexts? That's a, that's a great question. Uh, I wish we had a week uh, <laughs> to talk about that. <clears throat> you know, we had done short-term missions for decades. And so, and we'd, we'd been in Haiti every month for a week for three years. Now think about that, taking a week and going to Haiti every single month for three years. And so if you said, if you had asked me at that time, well, do you know a lot about Haiti? I said, well, of course I know a lot about Haiti. Look how many times I've been there. I mean, come on, give me a break. Mm. Well, moved down there (laughs) full time. There's a big difference between full time and going down there a whole lot. And this is something that I really want people to hear. You know, we all have biases and biases are inherent in in all of us. And, And we can't, we can't help it. We can do things to try to mitigate them, but they're there. When you come down on short-term mission trips, you basically just reinforce your bias every time you come because you're not there long enough to have that bias confronted and have you have to change, right? Mm -hmm. And so it's sort of like me saying, I didn't think they cared about their kids as much, that kind of thing. Obviously, that was an inherent bias I had that I had come up with on my own and was, you know, dead wrong, obviously, about that. So it's difficult because the things you're going to encounter as a long-term missionary, um, you know, you've got to have a faith that is just huge. It's just, I don't know exactly how you do. We've, we've gone through all the missionary prep programs and things and, you know, uh, the hard times in Haiti are really bad. They're really bad. And if you have, you know, if your faith isn't strong, you'll be gone. And we've seen that so many times over and over in people who wanted to be, you know, long-term 
and just, you know, just going from one culture to another, that's very different from your own, um, is just crushing to people. So, you know, the culture shock, it's a whole nother, <clears throat> you know, series, but culture shock's a real thing. Of course, as the arrogant surgeon, you know, from mm -hmm. Texas, you know, you put, you put that on top of it. I mean, it just sort of goes on and on, you know, you know, I thought I'd be immune. I mean, my goodness, I've been in Haiti all those times. And the culture shock is just brutal, especially when you're used to running water. You're used to going to the sink and turning the spout and clean water comes out. And then we even clean our clean water. You know, we put little attachments to our sink and clean our clean water. <clears throat> well, that didn't happen in Haiti, you know. Um, you're used to, I mean, if electricity goes out, that's just, I mean, that's reason to get on Facebook and complain, right? I mean, if your electricity goes out, <laughs> right. well, in Haiti, they don't even have it, you know? So it's just, it's crazy. And that wears on you over time. And the culture shock is, is terrible. And we see people typically at about seven to nine months of being in country, they crack up and they go home. And if they would stay a little bit longer, they could probably work through it. Uh, but leaving in the height of, of the problem that they're struggling with, um, you know, it's, it's interesting, especially coming from America. Uh, you know, you go into a grocery store and you can find 10 types of mustard. I didn't even know they had that many types of mustard, you know. In Haiti, you may go in and you don't find anything like that. I mean, they may not have bread. You know, they may not have, um, you know, anything that you would even want to eat. Um, and so, change, you know, changing your attitude toward things is so, so important. And that's one of the things that we talk a lot about. You know, before we went down there, we sold all of our possessions, sold our house, practiced cars, everything, um, and to move to Haiti. We kept a few things that we knew we needed in Haiti, some pots and pans and uh, plates and stuff like that. But um, really, basically, everything we owned fit in a backpack, you know, and um, mm. except for my guitar, I had to keep a guitar. So <laughs> I do have one of those, but it doesn't fit in the backpack. But, uh, you know, I think that's an important thing to do if you're considering long-term missions is to really have a period where you do without. Uh, it really tests your level of materialism. You may think you're not materialistic because we always gauge that against somebody else. Well, of mm. course, I'm not as materialistic mm. as you are. I mean, you know, obviously, <laughs> that makes it easy because you know, we can always point to somebody, <laughs> yeah. you know, who's driving the latest BMW or something. And, you know, um, but that's not what the Lord does. You know, he, he has a standard for us personally uh, that he wants us to attain to. And so, you know, giving up those kinds of things, you know, I, I think the, the council of um, developing an attitude of giving life to people wow. in situations is, is a foundational thing. So I love John 10, 10, you know, it's one of those scriptures that, that everybody knows, you know, and the, the second part of that says that Jesus came to give life and give life abundantly, right? That's John 10, 10 B. I don't think it said that in the Greek, but, <laughs> but that's, that's, he came to give life and give life abundantly. That's why he came. I mean, you could think of a whole lot of reasons. We could use a whole lot of $25 religious words, yeah. you know, like redemption and atonement and all that kind of stuff. But he came to give life and give life abundantly, you know. And so, you know, in my, my humble reading of that, giving life to people is like giving life to that little girl uh, who met me at church, you know, that was giving her life the example God used to give her eternal life, right? Yeah, I don't have a whole lot to do with that. I'm just there to, to, to give the life part, right? Um, but, but giving life, and, and that has so many different connotations. Obviously, saving somebody's life, uh, again, I think God's in charge of that. I just sort of prolong their death, you know, with what we do. But, you know, giving life to situations, um, you know, the, there are sort of two types of people in the world. There are people who build up and there are people who, who destroy, right? And that John 10, 10 is talking about two different types because the first part says the enemy comes to kill, steal, and destroy, right? 
So if there's killing, stealing, and destroying going on, you know who's in charge, Mm -hmm. right? If there's life being given, you know who's there. And I think bringing that to situations, I think here in the United States, we have ample situations right now that we could be bringing life to, right? That a lot of people are destroying. We could be given life to. But that's really true in the mission field, especially in a very poor situation like Haiti, uh, giving life and giving life abundantly, having that uh, love for the people, having that joy and that peace uh, that you only get from Jesus. You don't get from things. Things don't do it. Believe me, I tried. Didn't work. Uh, And uh, giving those things up was was really one of the the best things that I've ever done, besides marrying my wife. But uh, (laughs) You know, it's the kind of thing that you really, um, it tests you and you, you have to have faith because you say, well, if I don't have that thing, what am I going to do if I need it? Right. If I don't have enough food, what am I going to do? Well, then you sort of read the Sermon on the Mount and he says, don't worry about what you eat. Don't worry about what you wear. Right. You know, I've got that. And it basically puts you in that role of utterly depending upon Jesus to supply your needs. And you can't do that if you got lots of stuff. You can't live life um, in a giving way if you're more concerned about stuff than you are people. And so it's sort of a one or the other, unfortunately. Um, And I think that is something that would benefit people wanting to go and sacrifice uh, on the mission field like that. Wow. When you said that giving life, it just kind of gave me this idea. You know, we, we think about this, we read the scriptures where we'll have living streams of living water coming out of us. And I thought of this, I just kind of get this picture of a person just really just pouring, just being kind of open up their mouth and just kind of spray. It's this hosing people with, with life. Um, and like, really, that's what we're called. We're just called to speak life, life and death are in the power of the tongue. And we have to realize how many life giving words we say, but how many death giving things, you know, we can, we can really speak, you know, right. death to, to things and really discourage people from things. So we have to watch our tongue. And, you know, that's a lesson for all of us. We, you know, we all can have tragic situations happen and we, you know, we kind of go to the negative, but really being full of God. You yourself spending that time, and we all can you know spend more time. We can all be more full of life, but really being a person who who opens up their mouth and streams of living water come out, and they're just just filling people with hope, mm-hmm. filling people with life, p- filling people with encouragement. And you know what? That attracts because there's the world. Absolutely. The world's full of death. The world's full of discouragement. Right. You know, we we turn on the news. We, everywhere we go, there's discouragement and those those sorts mm-hmm. of things. But when they see something different, wow, that that pulls people in. And I want to talk about that a little bit so true. about hopeless, hopelessness. And I think about poverty cycles and that's some of my background. I think about poverty and, and we know that when people are trapped in a lifestyle of po- poverty, that can bring hopelessness and, and it can just really almost lead to a, uh, almost, I'm not going to try because right. whatever I do, it's not going to help. And I think about Haiti's situation. It seems like they go from crisis to crisis to crisis to crisis. And I can think of earthquakes, earthquakes this year. I can think of um, assassination this year. I can think of all that. And it almost leads to a culture of just, I'm not going to try. I'm just hopeless. I, it, no matter what right. I do, I'm not going to win. And so I wondered how, right. how do you bring life to those situations? Can you speak to that in terms of how do you help break that cycle of hopelessness and break up some of that poverty cycle and bring life and enable people to step into their own roles and helping being part of the solution and being part of that development process that you described earlier? That's a great question. And, you know, one of the big problems and, and, and wealthy people suffer from this too. So this is, this is not just uh, poor folks, <clears throat> you know, people have a mindset. Again, there's two types of people. I don't know how many times you can have two types of people, right? There are people that think that, um, resources are scarce, you know, that possibilities are scarce. And that if I go out and take a a resource, then that leaves less for you, right? And so those are people who uh, gather, they just want stuff for themselves and too bad to be you, but I'm going to get all I can, right? Then there are people who say, you know, there's an abundance out there. 
there is more than we can even ask or think about. We can't even, our mind won't contain it. That, that we have a God who is not constrained by supply and demand, right? He's not constrained by trickle down or uh, economics, right? That's just not it. He's not constrained by anything. I mean, if he, if he wants to, you know, make more food, he, more food's there and it falls out of the sky and we call it manna, right? You know, and so, you know, and it's that attitude, you know, if we see it in the nonprofit world, you know, we're competing nonprofits, really competing nonprofits. How in the world can we be competing nonprofits, right? Well, there's only so many dollars out there and I don't, I'm not going to tell you who our donors are because you might poach them. Well, that's crazy, right? I know who my donor is, you know, he's, and he's got, all the cattle of a thousand hills, you know, yes. so, you know it's, it's just depends on how you, you, you source it. And that's in not quite those many words or those words is what we try to communicate, you know, is that, um, you know, the Lord gives abundantly, they, they look at me obviously as somebody who's got had, had a lot of money at one point, um, you know, but has had great education, had access to everything you could possibly have. And so the Haitians will look at me and they'll say, yeah, but look at you. I mean, you, you, you have all this possibility. I don't. Well, that's when we try to communicate that those, those possibilities are God given. Right. And it doesn't matter if you have two pairs of shoes, you know, yeah, I have two pairs of shoes. You know, that's good. That's a great thing. You don't have to carry them around. And it, it, that's not what the focus on. The focus is on the abundance of the life that God gives. And so, and, and it's a message to rich Christians in the United States. You know, it, it's always amazing to me. Some of the least generous people are the wealthiest. And, you know, sort of the old joke is that's why they're wealthy. You know, they don't give it away. Uh, but, you know, the, the obviously the spiritual connection is the more you give, the more you get, right? And so the, the equation is, the kingdom economy is completely different than, than the world's economy. And so communicating that to the Haitians, it, it takes that desire to be wealthy, the desire to have that car, that house, that whatever, it takes that away because the abundance of our life doesn't exist in stuff. The abundance of our life consists in our relationship with God and our, our place in the kingdom of God. And it's those very things that give us our place in the kingdom of God. You know, we are blessed. You know, those who, who leave father and mother, brother and sister and lands and houses will be blessed a thousandfold, you know? I don't really follow the market a whole lot, but I don't think it's generating a thousand fold right now, you know? Uh, and yeah. so <laughs> that's the investment. And you can communicate that to somebody with $10 million in the bank or no bank account. And mm -hmm. I think that's sort of the key. And it's so godly, you know, it's exactly what God wants from all of us is we just live hand to mouth in utter dependence of him his hand, our mouth, you know, and I think that's, that's the communicating piece that is so important in this situation. You know, one thing you said that I just wanted to amplify just a tad, um, you know, part of having this attitude of, of, uh, of, of loving people, having this attitude of living missionally is that we love people in their lostness, you know, and, and we like to love people who are saved because they're typically cleaner, you know, they, they don't have as much baggage, you know, it's just sort of easier, right? But aren't we glad Jesus didn't do it that way? If Jesus had done it that way, I know I would be up a creek, right? Mm -hmm. He loved us in our lostness and, and loving people who are voodoo priests, who are voodoo priestesses, um, Great story about a voodoo priestess, if we have time. I don't know what our time constraints sure. are, but I'll tell you a quick story. So um, Maisie is uh, her name. She came in uh, to our clinic uh, and she had severe burns to her legs, severe burns. And so uh, my wife was running the burn clinic uh, at that point. And so she calls me over and says, look at this. And this, it was very bizarre 
uh, burned, you know, all the way to the bone up to her knees, very, very severe burns. And so we started talking to her and she was very, very hard. She had a very hard countenance, uh, didn't want to tell us what was going on. And one of our translators came over and said, she's a voodoo priestess. And we said, well, how do you know? She's, he's, well, he's, got a, she's got a red hat band in her hat, and that's a sign. And he said, she's been walking through fire and worship to Satan. That's what the voodoo priestesses do. So she had these severe burns because of her worship to, say, to Satan. Mm-hmm. I wonder how many Christians would give up that amount of stuff and worship to God. But wow. she had been doing this over and over. So we started treating her legs, started treating her burns, took years for her, you know, to get better. But my wife, you know, ministered to her, would pray with her. Initially, she totally resisted the prayers. She was violently opposed to them. And then after a little while, she would come in and ask for prayers. This went on for years. And uh, one day she came forward and gave her life to the Lord. And she uh, was ostracized in her community because she was a voodoo priestess. So none of the voodoo people liked her. The Christians didn't trust her because she had been a voodoo priestess. And she, they could look at her legs and say, we know what you are. We know what you've been doing. And so she, you know, she gave up an awful lot to become uh, a believer. Uh, she actually, wor- actually worked for us for many years uh, you know, on our base. She passed away recently. But um, she actually had, uh, I believe, 10 children, and her last child was born when she was a believer. So he he was one of the only of her children who was actually born into faith. Uh, Many of them accepted faith later. But but Maisie um, had been through a lot, and that's that's sort of loving her in that condition can be a challenge. Uh, But working through that, seeing her uh, in the potential that she obviously developed over time is the key, uh, you know, to living missionally in that way. Amen. I think we love because he loved first and, right. And I love how your wife was such a great example that they will know your Christians by your what? By your love. Right. And your love. Yeah. We just keep that relentless love that Jesus had for us and that relentless love that he gives to us to continue to see people for what you said so well, their potential, who they can be. Cause thank God that mm-hmm. he sees us for our potential, not who we are. And we think about, I think of the story of Gideon, you know, here's this guy, you know, hanging out, hiding. And he says, you brave war, you know, you, 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 <laughs> feel and, and here's this guy, like, he's like, who me? I'm, I'm here <laughs> hiding. And, you know, God sees us for our potential. He sees who we can be. And uh, thank God that he gives us that ability to to see past some of these things, you know, fire burnt legs or, you know, just rudeness or physical, just, Hey, I don't want any prayer. And that relentless, I you see them through the lens of Jesus. So, wow. When I hear your story, I think about faith with little faith with much. And I just hear you going from, you know, one thing to the next, seeing a need asking why, why am I seeing this? Why, why does this exist? And really from that, why developing solutions, developing systems, develop and and moving into development, training others and going to the next thing. And so what's next for live beyond and what, it sounds like you're even expanding. So so tell us some more about the upcoming projects and some of the upcoming expansion that live beyond has. Well, you know, we're so blessed and uh, the Lord gave us a heart uh, for the Middle East uh, early in the 90s. My first trip over there was in the 70s, but he really gave us a heart for the people in the Middle East um, in, the, in the early 90s. We have dear friends uh, who are there uh, and the Messianic <clears throat> Jewish people who are, I have a church there that are just fantastic. And um, so we wanted to find a way to be able to work in in the, the Israel area, our calling is to the poorest of the poor, and Israel is it is is a fantastic country. Um, you know they have a, a social system that really there aren't any poor. I mean it's just it's very difficult to find. You can it you have to look pretty hard, um, and so it, it never seemed to fit. I couldn't figure out you know the the things that we that the Lord has given us to do you know, such as maternal health and child health, 
um, those kinds of things didn't resonate until, <clears throat> um, I guess it was in uh, May of, of 2018, we spent a month over there and uh, really got to be friends with a uh, Christian Arab pastor who pastors in Jerusalem. He has a Ramallah and Jericho, if you're sort of familiar with that area. And so, you know, I was sort of sharing with him my bit of frustration because I wanted to be here, but didn't really see that I had much to offer, you know, in, in that area. And he said, uh, come with me to Jericho. We'll go tomorrow and I'll show you. And so we, you know, piled in his car and uh, we went down to Jericho and he showed us, um, you know, the poverty that's there uh, on the, wow. on the Arab side. And so that was when the Lord spoke to us and said, you know, I want you to, want you to do something here. Um, and one of the programs that we have in Haiti that is just, uh, we just absolutely love is a program for the handicapped. And we call it Johnny's kids. My wife, uh, her little brother had down syndrome, Johnny Stallings, and he died um, in 2008. But uh, so we call this program Johnny's Kids Program. They're not all kids, but it's uh, it, it goes goes well with the name. So we really felt like the Lord was calling us to start a Johnny's Kids Program um, in the in Palestine, and so we've done so. We've actually hired staff there, and uh, we are now uh, serving uh, the the families of people who have disabilities. And uh, these people are very typically, in, and so in this, in this particular case, they're very typically shunned from society. Uh, even in this area, they think that the family is cursed uh, because they have a child with special needs. Uh, that's the way it was in Haiti as well. They had that same feeling that uh, the family was cursed. And we found in Haiti that if we loved these individuals, we, we would, you know, we would carry them with us, we'd feed them, we'd bathe them, we'd give them health care, just all the things that they needed, that that modeling of that behavior then caught on in the community. And so it's just amazing how infectious God's ways are, you know, his ways are, are amazing. And so this is the kind of thing we started this program uh, this past year and the kind of thing that we really believe will take hold in this community. Uh, there's a tremendous number of people with special needs uh, in this community. So I think uh, we're going to be busy for quite some time. And as soon as we can get to Israel, they're closed uh, to outsiders. Uh, but as soon as we can get there, uh, we'll plan on spending half our time in Jerusalem and half our time in Haiti uh, taking care of the people. So super excited about this. We think it's going to expand in other ways. Uh, we're working with believers uh, on both sides uh, of, of the line there in, uh, in Israel. And I think our unique position as uh, American Christians, uh, we're in an unusual situation where both sides like us, which is sort of nice. You were not, don't usually have that kind of, <laughs> kind of thing. Uh, and so we're hoping that we can serve as a catalyst to, to bring uh, groups together and uh, hopefully bring you know, more harmonious life and peace in that area. Amen. Blessed are the peacemakers is what keeps on coming to my mind. And may you be a, an amazing peacekeeper, mm -hmm. peacemaker there. And uh, wow. For the listener who's like, wow, I am so amazed at what Dr. Dave is doing and, and what the whole Live Beyond organization is doing. How do people begin to follow the, the journey of Live Beyond, whether it's in Haiti whether it's in Israel, whether it's your personal, how can people begin to find more information and connect with you guys? Well, if you'll they'll go to our website, that's livebeyond.org, um, they can sign up for a newsletter. So the newsletters go out a couple of times a month and uh, it sort of says, you know, what's going on, uh, sort of the highlights of, of different things, the babies being born. That's always, you know, a lot of fun. And then what our activities uh, in Israel are other uh, potential activities around the world. And so I uh, go to our website, Facebook page, uh, Twitter and all that uh, kind of thing uh, is, uh, is very active. And so go and check that out. We also have a book. Uh, it's called Live Beyond. 
Um, and uh, it's a, a call, a radical call to surrender and serve. And it goes through our, our journey, basically. How did I get from successful American surgeon living in Nashville, Tennessee, to uh, living in the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere? Um, and, uh, and just sort of with the backdrop of encouragement that uh, if I can do it, anybody can do it. And so uh, that encouragement to be like Jesus, you know, Jesus left his riches in heaven, right? He left the security of heaven, you know, he, golden gate or pearly gates and golden streets and the security of he, he had, he never suffered in heaven. There was no way that he could suffer. There was nobody that could harm him in heaven. He left that status, that camaraderie with his father, um, his family, and he left that and he came and he became a man on this dirty, violent um, globe we call earth. And that's the heart of a long-term missionary. You have to leave. You have to leave. He, you know, was beat for us. He, he was whipped so that we can be healed. He, uh, he gave his life. He liberated hell and he's coming back. And he's not coming back as the suffering savior. He's coming back as the conquering savior. Mm -hmm. And so until he does, he has a mission for each one of us. And each one of us is called to leave. May not be Haiti. And I'm not, not it, that is definitely not for, for everybody. You've got to be called. If you're not called, you can't go. You'll, it'll be absolutely frustrating and you'll be a failure. You have to be called. The Lord will call you. You have to listen. Uh, but he, uh, he has something for all of us, whether it's our next door neighbor or whether it's around the world. Uh, he wants us all communicating the gospel of Jesus Christ uh, to everyone. So that's, that's the thing about we're all missionaries. We're all missionaries. Mm -hmm. We all have to go. We all have to give up our security. We can't say, well, it's too violent. It's too dangerous. It's too something. We have to go. Um, Jesus did. And aren't we glad that he did that? If he hadn't, what if he had said, you know, it's, it's too violent down there or they don't smell pretty good. You know, what if he had said that, you know, we don't, you know, that's one of the problems, <laughs> but he did anyway. And, uh, that's, that's how we get redemption. And so we have people that need redeeming as well. And, uh, we're the vehicle, uh, for that. So Jesus can minister to them. Wow. Amen. What a Amen. challenge. Wow. Challenge. Challenge accepted mm -hmm. to live that missional, live that missional life, to live beyond, you know, mm -hmm. where we are now and step into that, which God has for us. Dr. David, what an honor to have you on the show today. Yes, thank, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom you. and your insights and your stories with us. May you be blessed. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Right. <laughs> be blessed. Thank you. Bless you today. <laughs>